Recovery Elevator, episode 32. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, two weeks, and two days. On today's podcast, we have part three of my story. I apologize. It got a little long-winded there, but today is the most important part. The previous two parts, if you listen to the similarities, it's really the same as any other story of an alcoholic. We choose to drink. Over time, it progresses into a disease, an addiction, and it just kicks the shit out of this, which is exactly what happened to me. But part three is my solution, how I made it to one year, two weeks, and two days. We're going to talk about my recovery portfolio. I love that word, and I got it from a guy named Matthew who I interviewed just a couple days ago. He should be in episode 34 or 35, maybe even the next one, but he calls it a recovery portfolio because when I was a dry drunk for two and a half years, my recovery portfolio consisted of this, a leather-bound book, and inside it maintained one sticky note that said, don't drink. That's all my recovery portfolio was. Fast forward to nearly two and a half years later, my recovery portfolio is busting at the seams. And that doesn't mean that I'm doing enough to maintain sobriety. It means I need to get a larger leather bound portfolio because I'm going to continue to fill my recovery portfolio with items, tasks, systems, meetings, programs, conversations, whatever it may be to help me stay sober. Also on today's podcast, we have Tim. He's a professor, a father, He's 50 years old, and he has gotten sober through the smart recovery system. But before we get into part three, the solution, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.sobernation.com. Once again, that's sobernation.com. I concluded part two of my story saying I had called my parents. I was ready to go to rehab, but my parents in that moment were in a moment that I decided they could have. <laughs> what I mean by that, we are extremely selfish, us alcoholics. My parents were spreading Aunt Ellen's ashes on top of the lodge at Snowbird in Utah. Well, she wasn't actually my aunt, but it was somebody who spent a lot of Christmas dinners and Thanksgiving with. And growing up in Salt Lake City, she was very close to our family. So I decided, Mom, Dad, you guys can have this moment. But tomorrow morning when I call, you better pick up the phone on the first ring because we're going to rehab. When I woke up the next morning, there were a lot of emotions and feelings still present. Desperate. Miserable. My head hurt, completely out of shape physically. I felt alone. Clouds above me were pretty damn gray. And there was a mental haze and fog that wouldn't go away. There was, however, one emotion that was different. It was a feeling that I hadn't felt for a very long time. And I'm going to quote O from the Share podcast. It was my HP baby. Thank you, O, for that line. I'm going to continue to use it. My HP, or higher power, was with me. It had always been there, but when I made those calls and I was truly ready to go to rehab, give it up, my butt was whooped. That's when my higher power was like, all right, man, I'm here. Let's do this. 
So I woke up the next day, but with that higher power feeling, I decided, you know what? I am going to go to an AA meeting. And if I still feel like crap after that meeting, I'll call my parents. I got out of that first meeting. I didn't just feel like crap. I felt like total shit, but this HP baby was still with me. So midday rolls around. I did the same thing. I went to another meeting. Guess what? After that second meeting, I felt, well, I still felt like shit. Went to one more meeting that day. After I walked out of that third meeting, I felt like total shit, but there was an HP, higher power with me. I've described in earlier podcasts, my higher power oftentimes takes the form of wind blowing between the pine trees in the forest, a beautiful ocean lake. It's the way my dog runs through a field after a ball. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be capital G-O-D. For me, it could be capital B-E-N, the D-O-G. It doesn't matter what your higher power is, but something was different. At the end of that day, I felt like shit. I've had worse withdrawal symptoms, but still the first 72 hours are completely brutal. I had a sobriety tracker on my phone that started with a decimal first. So if you woke up, you set your sobriety date, it would be like 0.001. I had to reset my sobriety date so many times in the summer of 2014 that that decimal just crushed me. I wanted it to start off with 1.00 or just start off with the one. It's your day one, not day 0.001. So that's kind of why I did start the Recovery Elevator Sobriety Tracker app. When you start off, you don't start at .001. So the first 24 hours, physically, they're terrible. Mentally, there's a fog and a haze that helps you get through it because you don't really remember much looking behind you. But every moment moving forward, you're in it. You're feeling these emotions that you put away for a long time. Sleep the first two to three nights, especially the first night, not even a freaking chance. Mattress was completely soaked with sweat night one. Night two, I maybe got an hour of sleep. Night three, probably three to four. And then circadian rhythm started to go back to normal. That does take a long time for your sleep habits to go back to completely normal. But the natural physical recuperation process begins and it begins fast. Your body is a remarkable specimen and it will start to heal from the damage that you've done with alcohol fairly quickly. That's where the ism, the incredibly short memory comes along is after like five or six days of your body healing itself. It's when you go, Oh yeah, I've got this. I don't remember it being that painful. My body feels good. And you drink again. However, this time I had my HP with me. I just looked over. I also have a Hewlett Packard printer, but there's two HPs with me in my room, my printer and my higher power that's with me. So I repeated the first process that got me through day one over for about a week. I went to three meetings a day for a week. After that, I went to two meetings a day, but I would alternate. Sometimes I'd go to three, then I'd go to two, three, then two. Then I go to one, then I go back to three, then to two, then to one, to two, to one. You get the point. But that 90 meetings in 90 days things, which I think is a great idea if you want to get sober, I crushed it. I knocked it out of that park. I probably did 120 meetings in 90 days. With my HP being ever present with me, I was more willing in these meetings to reach out to other people. When the meeting concluded, I wouldn't just bolt for the door. I wasn't like a ball of joy striking up conversations with anybody, but I didn't leave right away. Sometimes I just stood there and let people walk by me. And if they wanted to talk to me, they could. But I was putting myself outside of my comfort zone and even occasionally striking up conversations with people. And after hearing a certain individual speak several times in the meetings, I approached him one day 
I took a bite out of my humble hamburger, put it aside, walked up to this gentleman and said, would you like to be my sponsor? Yes, with trepidation, fear, all the above. I asked this gentleman to be my sponsor. He said, yes, here are my conditions. All the conditions sounded ludicrous. Why would I have to do that to get sober? I didn't want to do any of them. But my HP spoke up. It said, damn it, Paul, say yes, or I'm walking out the door. You got this thing on your own, Paul. So I said, yes. And I met with my sponsor once a week, texted him daily, did whatever he told me to do. Got a notebook filled with stuff. My sponsor is a great man. He dedicates so much of his life to recovery. I'm thinking it's got to be me and like one other cats that he is sponsoring. He's got a portfolio of sponsees, like nine or 10 of them. Plus he's at every meeting that I go to in the specific group. I mean, if Time Magazine knew of the individual heroes that were going on in recovery, my sponsor, he'd be a front runner for Time Man of the Year. I understand there are traditions and anonymity, but screw it. I'm going to call him out. Lee, you're a saint. I would not be sober today. Words cannot express my gratitude for the time you have spent with me, guiding me through this journey of sobriety. I have always loved podcasts, and the world of online blogging and podcasts has always been intriguing to me. So I've wanted to do a podcast for a couple years now, but the topic had no idea what I wanted to do it on. So it was about a month in of sobriety where I had this crazy idea that I needed to create accountability. When I told my mom and dad in their houseboat in the morning at Lake Powell in May 2014, I basically busted in the room, said, hey guys, it's 6.10 in the morning, wake up, I'm an alcoholic, I'm shit-faced. But what that was, was creating accountability. It was hard for me to do, but it got them on board. A couple days later on that trip, I told my brother, look, this alcohol thing, me not drinking, it's a pretty serious issue. Little did I know, my brother would be bailing me out of jail in Livingston, Montana, just two short months later. And then there was a fantasy football draft in August of 2014. I sent a terrifying text to seven of my best friends, my brother included, saying, hey guys, I'm really struggling with alcohol. They all knew that I don't drink, but they didn't understand the severity of the issue. I said, hey guys, I'm really struggling now. If I stay in that football game, I'm going to drink. And it was preseason and Peyton Manning did not look very good against the Texans, but that's a side note. So I went home. I ended up drinking that night anyways, but little did I know I was creating accountability. And when I made that lifeline call on August 29th, lifted up that thousand pound phone, however you want to call it, it's tough. You got to swallow your pride. I called Christina, laid it all out on the line. She knew it in my voice that it was serious. No questions asked. I'll be right there. And on August 29th, that's when the HP showed up. It wasn't my last day of drinking because I woke up the next day, went to three AA meetings, three, 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 and then I drank one more time on September 6th. But you can't drink anymore when your HP is with you. I'm telling you right now, it completely ruins the experience. Same thing when you go to AA, if you go out and start drinking again, it's going to ruin it for you. <laughs> that's a good thing though, I guess. So that's the idea of where the podcast came in to create accountability because I knew if I just didn't drink, that was my only portfolio item. With the ism, the incredible short memory, after two years, if I'd even made it to two years, probably would have been only like four to five months of sobriety, I would have relapsed again. 
So that is where the idea of the podcast came in to help me stay sober. And the podcast was to create accountability. So my recovery consists of seven foundational core values. My recovery portfolio contains four key items, but I'm going to go through the foundational core values right now. These will all be listed on the recoveryelevator.com under podcast episode 32 in the show notes on that page. There will also be a lot of links of where you can get more information about the products and items that I discuss in this episode. Foundational core value number one, accountability. That's when you wake up in the morning, you say, oh my goodness, I am done drinking forever. And sure as shit, six, seven, eight hours later, you're drunk. This is not a moral failing. You are not a weak person. You've got a disease. You're going to lose that battle 99 out of 100 times, which I found out myself. Going to AA created a lot of accountability. Well, my second AA meeting, that is. First one I went to, found out I was not an alcoholic. Boy, was I wrong. So even those meetings, raising your hand saying, yes, I'm in my first 30 days of sobriety again. That creates accountability. For me, I needed a lot of accountability. So accountability is when you let other people know what the F is going on in your life. If I were to go to downtown Bozeman right now, hold anything in my hand that looks like it resembles an alcoholic drink, someone is going to roundhouse that beverage right out of my hands. Accountability is all about creating an environment where people know you don't drink. They don't got to know the whole story, but your close friends and your close group, and they need to know. They have to know. Because if they're not healthier sobriety, they also got to go. A pillar under the accountability core value is the fact that I cannot do this alone. None of us can do this alone. If you are an alcoholic, and only you can determine that, you can't do this alone. My second foundational core value is affirmation and repetition. This addresses the ism part of the disease, the incredible short memory, the affirmation. You hear that lame slogan, one day at a time. It's actually one of my favorite slogans because this whole thing is one day at a time. The other day I spoke to somebody who went to their first meeting and they were terrified of the thought they would have to go to meetings their entire life and never take a drink again. Ooh, me just saying that, it gives me the shivers. But then you tell yourself, look, you don't got to think about the whole life. Just think about today, one day at a time. It's the affirmation that I still am an alcoholic. What me talking into this microphone, looking at a bunch of green waveforms go up and down when I talk, that's an affirmation for me. I just said it. I'm an alcoholic, son of a gun. Who cares? I'm an alcoholic. But right there, that's my affirmation. Because if I don't do this program, my portfolio, one day I will forget that I'm an alcoholic and I will pick up a drink again. My third foundational core value that I use to stay sober is to never lose sight of my number one priority, which is getting backstage passes to a third eye blind concert before the band breaks up. I'm just kidding. Well, kind of. But my number one priority, slightly above the previous one I just mentioned, number one priority is sobriety. Anything that goes above sobriety, be it my job, be it Ben, my lovely standard poodle, a girlfriend, when that happens one day, it will all be lost. And that person, if they really do love you, and boy, does my standard poodle Ben love me, it's a two-way street, Ben, they will understand 100%. This priority or perspective tool, it is the best grounding device I have ever used. What I mean when life happens, 
an unexpected bill shows up in the mail. You hit a deer with your car, which if you live in Montana, it's only a matter of a time that your car is going to crash into a deer, a buffalo, or a cow. Life will happen. But none of that matters because sobriety is the number one thing. I have let the shitty committee take my mind to really bad places. But the instant that I can put it into perspective and be like, all right, wait a second. Sobriety is the number one thing. A wave of calm just cruises right over me. And nothing matters besides sobriety. The fourth foundational core value is you've got to be bilingual. I'm not talking go pick up Rosetta Stone and learn Portuguese. I'm talking you've got to learn to understand your addiction when it's talking or when you're talking. Because when that shitty committee gets going led by your addiction, it's your own voice. And it's not in a vernacular that you don't understand. You understand the words but you don't understand who's saying the words. Is it me, Paul Churchill, or is it the alcoholic addicted mind that has manifested itself in my brain? Being bilingual entails recognizing the thoughts that eventually will lead to a relapse because we all know the relapse happens way before that first drink. Another great thing about this podcast is the amazing things that I hear. And it was the interviewee, I think three or four episodes that said that your addiction is lying to you in your own voice. You've got to be sneaky and sly to truly decipher if it's you talking or it's the addiction. Number five, this core value is paramount. We did this in episode one or two. This is the comfort zone exercise. If you've already done this with me, skip forward 20 seconds or just do it again, the whole affirmation part. If you're driving or running or folding laundry, it doesn't matter, just do this in your head. But if you do have a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen, go ahead and do this with me. I'll wait three seconds for you to grab one. Two, one, okay. Draw a circle on a piece of paper, done. Put a dot in the middle of that circle, done. Put a dot outside that circle, done. Label that dot in the middle of the circle, you or me, just put your name by that dot in the middle of the circle. Then there's this dot outside the circle. Label that sobriety, happiness, a yacht, or any magical goal. But in this exercise, we're reaching for sobriety and prolonged recovery. That's where it's located. You're pretty far away from it at this moment if you are that dot inside of that circle. The circle around it is the comfort zone. That's eating a vegetable for the first time where you were a kid. Or my brother Mark when he was 23 years old. That's putting on jeans for the first time when you grew up wearing sweatpants till you were 13. Those were cool in Utah, I promise. If you can't get outside your comfort zone, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to happen. None of your dreams and goals and aspirations will ever come true if you're not willing to get outside of that circle. It's pretty easy to draw a bunch of dots and circles on a piece of paper, but getting outside of it in real life is another story. The sixth foundational core value that I have used to stay sober is accepting your current situation. This is on page 417 of the big blue book. It is my favorite paragraph probably ever written. I go back and read this thing at least a couple times a week. It's all about accepting the way things are right now. If you got a couple pennies in your bank account and you owe thousands more, you've got to be okay with that. 
being in the moment and feeling those feelings, you've got to accept your current situation. Sure, I can easily say that into a microphone. Doing it is another thing. It's hard. I'm still working at it. But accepting that things aren't perfect in my life at this very moment, it instantly makes things seem a little more doable. Number seven of my foundational core values is, thank you, oh, the higher power HP, baby. You can never shut off your body and mind to that higher power. I've got it with me. It's sitting shotgun. We're cruising down the road. I'm driving HP in the front seat. Unfortunately, the addiction's in the back seat because that's never going anywhere. But I have learned to be bilingual. When it pipes up, I turn around, look at the back seat, and just say, zip it. But simply being open to a higher power is very uncomfortable. Back it up to core values. Get outside your comfort zone, Paul. But the more you're outside of your comfort zone, where the growth happens, it gets a little easier. Now let's talk about my recovery portfolio, my program, how I stay sober and how I plan to stay sober in the long run. Number one are my programs and team. When I say program, talk about AA. This podcast, not in any way affiliated with AA. And if you feel like I'm violating some tradition on a poster that's hanging on your wall, I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. Because my qualm about that program, it's a little too anonymous. So anonymous to the point that the people that need help the most, they don't even hear about your program. A little flaw in that program design, I would say. Within AA, I've got my sponsor. Meet with him weekly, every other week. I also try to go to two to three meetings a week. This summer was busy. We're all busy. Sometimes I got one meeting. But even when I'm out of state and traveling, I'm still trying to find them. And in the fall, when I've got my slower time, I plan to go to two to three to four to five a week. I'm volunteering on two programs with NAA. One's a fundraiser. And the other one is the roundup for our state coming up here in 2016. I'm the entertainment chair. Yeah. Next up in my recovery portfolio, which has been extremely helpful in me staying sober, has been this, Recovery Elevator. For that, I got to say thanks. It was never my point to create a program to help myself stay sober. I was creating accountability, but a complete program? Not at all. But it somewhat has evolved into that for me. We've got the Recovery Elevator Private Accountability Group. I'm reading those posts like two to three times a day. The emails that I get, the people I get to interview, the shows that I've been interviewed on, that all is part of my recovery portfolio. Next up is my sobriety team. Number one, could not have done this without you, Molly and Perry and Mark. Mom, dad, my brother. Next up, my sponsor, Lee. Kelly, who has been there since the inception of Recovery Elevator, she does all the social media and a lot of the blog posts. She's incredible. And then there's the medical and professional team that when you get sober, it's a really good idea to have these key players in place. My psychologist, Becca, Dr. Liesel Pessel, and the entire staff at GMHC. That makes it sound like I've seen every therapist in the building. Although it might be true, I'm just saying they all do a good job. Next up in my recovery portfolio is the Sober Social Hour. 
This is the 12th step of really every 12-step recovery program. It's working with other alcoholics. Doesn't matter if you haven't even started with step one. Doesn't matter if you're on step eight. Flip to the end of the book, go right to the last step, and start working with other alcoholics. I don't like to use the verb work, but it's just hanging out with other alcoholics. Sometimes that does take the form of a sponsor saying, hey, write all the things you hate about yourself down on a piece of paper. But sometimes it's just having lunch or coffee with another alcoholic. That helps with the affirmation part of it. Helps with the accountability part of it. Helps with, oh, we cannot do this alone. You're also creating an environment. You're talking to another alcoholic. You're not listening to your addiction. You're outside of your comfort zone making new friends. Your HP and their HP, they're all hanging out. It's like a double date and you don't even know it. The young gentleman in my second interview, I believe, says, this is a communal disease. You might have nothing in common with that other alcoholic except, oh wait, this huge thing called the disease of alcoholism. Another huge component of my recovery portfolio, within the first two and a half years of sobriety when I was just a dry drunk, before I finally relapsed in 2012, was I only addressed the physical component. Now I'm doing the mental, the physical, and the psychological component of it. A lot of that has to deal with my diet, my exercise, prayer, and meditation. With my diet, I made like 25 changes. When I initially quit drinking in 2010, I lost like five to seven pounds. My face, still fat. But this time when I quit drinking, I coupled it with a lot of ideas that I got from the book called All Day Energy Diet. And this will be in the show notes for episode 32. In this book, there were a lot of myths that were debunked. Like I said, I made like 25 small changes to my diet. Maybe only one of them is working. I don't really care to find out which ones work and which ones don't. So I'm just going to keep rocking all of them. But here's some of the things that I did. I drink a ton of water right when I get out of bed. I have a three to one vegetable to fruit ratio. I juice. Like I said, I got a juicer for Christmas. How cool is that? Kidding. But I juice. I have supplements. I do omega fish oil. I do chlorella capsules. I do cordyceps mushrooms. I take rhodiola, ashwagandha flaxseed oil. I use coconut oil. I use spirulina. If it's green, it's got trapped sunlight and energy inside of its leaves. It's healthy for you. McDonald's and sugar and all that crap. It's just a garbage in garbage out mentality. You're going to feel like crap. If you're eating like crap, I completely changed my dietary habits more for the mental component. So mentally I would be in a better state of mind, which it does. It works like a charm. It's a lot easier to stay sober when the haze and fog of all the chemicals that are put in our food are not present in your brain. The secondary thing that happened is I lost like 15 to 20 pounds this time. My face, well, not as fat. Muscles on my stomach, those showed up. And a lot of other cool things happened, like I could run for days. Yeah, exercise was a huge part of that. Started slow, ran one mile, then two miles. And before I knew it, within three or four months, five to seven mile runs, that was the norm. Ian, who was interviewed about four to five podcast episodes ago, he talks about the same thing. When I first saw him, he was 230, half man, half beluga whale on that yoga mat. Now, he's got to have dropped like 40 or 50 pounds, and he runs like a cheetah. Part of this recovery portfolio to address the mental and physical component is the prayer and meditation. I can really only recite a couple prayers, and I'm not all that religious, it's not what this podcast is about, but you've got to be open to the idea to meditate and do prayer. Talk to whoever. Prayer is talk to your HP. 
It's not your capital G-O-D. And I meditate. When I first started, I set the timer on my phone for two minutes. That was brutal. Just simply breathing in for five seconds, holding it for five seconds, breathing out for five seconds. I still have trouble making it to two minutes without thinking of other thoughts, but now I can go to like four, five, six, seven, eight minutes. And I do this on a daily basis because it worked yesterday to keep me sober. It's probably going to work today. Not sure about tomorrow. I'm not even thinking about tomorrow. But doing this on a daily basis, I forget the word. What is it called when you go to bed at the same time, you wake up at the same time, you do the same things in your day to create a healthy environment? Oh, it's called routine. Yes, it's a routine. You got to schedule this stuff in like the meetings, like time to eat healthy meals and not pull your steering wheel into the McDonald's drive through lane. And that is my routine and my solution, which has gotten me to one year, two weeks and two days. I'm sure I'm going to listen to this in a couple weeks and be like, damn, I forgot this out a major part of my recovery, but my portfolio is ever evolving because what works today might not be effective tomorrow. And I'm always open to new ideas, new books, other podcasts. Sure, I've got my own podcast, but I'm also listening to Shane Raymer's That Sober Guide podcast. Oh, from The Share podcast. There are also podcasts on drug and alcohol recovery as well. That is where I am today. Still doing work to keep my tool belt full of tools for when life happens. Because I'm going to tell you what, that is guaranteed right now, Recovery Elevator. Life will happen. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen today. It doesn't matter, but it will happen. Yeah, this sober thing, ooh, it's pretty easy when life is going good for some of us. (laughs) But it's inevitable. Life will happen, and you will be in a situation where you're like, damn, a drink would make all this pain and suffering temporarily go away. Again, I apologize. Part three, part two, part one got a little long-winded. Holy crap. But that's it. That's my story. Now let's get to my favorite part of the podcast, the interviewee. Let's hear from Tim. Tim, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Tim is 50 years old. He is a professor. He's got a son or a man, shall we say now. He just turned 19 years old. And Tim, I'm going to let you answer this next question. How long have you been sober? I've been sober for about three years now. Congratulations on three years of sobriety. I want to join your club of three years soon. I'm going to be there. But before we get into about how you got to three years of sobriety, let's reference the podcast title. Talk to me about your elevator. When did you decide it was time to stop riding this elevator down and get off? Oh, well, it was about three years ago. Actually, I had made the decision to get off the elevator like most people multiple times. I uh, had tried a number of efforts, uh, just uh, trying to quit on my own. I'd gone to a couple of AA meetings. I uh, checked myself into a detox about five years ago. My uh, approach to that was that uh, when I went to get this poison out of my system, then I would be a better person afterwards. I discovered that unless I had a real plan in place for what happens after the detox, then I really would start right back where I began, which is exactly what happened. So about three years ago, I really just had enough. And this time when I checked into the detox, I made sure that I had a plan in place for for when I left. And uh, it served me well ever since. Talk to me about your drinking habits. Five years ago when you decided to quit drinking or when you when you decided that you might have a drinking problem, how much were you drinking? Oh, at the end, I was drinking a, a third of a, of a handle 
every day. Uh, so a handle would last me for three days mostly, sometimes two. But it was a flow thing. I, um, I like you, I was listening to your story the other day. Uh, in high school, I was not very notable in terms of my drinking habits. Still, uh, it wasn't even during college, but after that. In fact, it wasn't even after college. It was around about the time of the divorce that I had in uh, 1999. My son, as I, you know, you mentioned that I do have a son. Well, during our divorce, my ex and I, we, we stayed in the same general region geographically, uh, but he's, my son spent most of his time with me, so I was essentially a single dad for, uh, for a good 15 years. So he saw his mom every other weekend, but uh, mostly me. And I, I took that job very seriously, and I think probably so seriously that I stressed myself out with it. Um, and one of the ways that I dealt with all those stresses was to come home, unwind, drink, and that got to be so habitual that I started to uh, isolate myself. I started to not go out and do things with friends and family and so forth. And after a while, I just started to uh, to take a toll. My physician had pointed out on a number of occasions that my liver enzymes were high, which seems to be a theme I've heard on this uh, podcast a couple of times. And I, you know, didn't spend too much time thinking about those. Actually, I knew in the back of my mind that it was very closely tied probably to my alcohol consumption. At one point, my physician said, I think we ought to bring you in and have a um, ultrasound done for my liver. And I went in for an ultrasound. It turned out that my liver had a condition called fatty liver. So I uh, was actually at home once, one night uh, in front of my computer. I don't know what I was doing. Um, uh, but I got this letter and I'm reading it you know, while I was drinking my scotch, <laughs> telling me about fatty liver. So me being the good researcher I was, I uh, looked up fatty liver on the internet. So while I'm digging around figuring out what fatty liver is, I, I learned that it's the precursor to cirrhosis. It's the, it's the step right before cirrhosis happens. And given the way that my mind was working, I thought, well, I wonder if this is probably due to alcohol consumption, but I, but I wonder if there are cases where it's not. So I continue reading on the internet and I find out that sure enough, uh, there are some cases of fatty liver and, and cirrhosis ultimately uh, where it doesn't seem that alcohol is a contributing factor. It turns out that uh, it's a tiny, tiny percentage, about 2%, but uh, my mind working the way it was, I managed somehow to convince myself that I was that 2%. It's, it's actually fascinating how it worked. In fact, I discovered that much of my thinking was all very delusional to the point of me coming up with ways, all sorts of ways that on the surface seemed rational and seemed to make sense uh, for why I was doing what I was doing. In the end, I, I, I discovered that essentially this is a very, very flawed way of thinking. And if I was going to get better, I had to alter not only you know my relationship with alcohol, but how my thought process worked because it was not working in a way that was beneficial to me or anyone else. So those are a series of things that led me up to led me up to uh, getting really serious about it. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing, but I'm not, you know, the same time, like, Oh, I, I could be in the 2% that my, my fatty liver is, is due to me just being a lucky person. I'm, I'm in the 2%. I mean, that's insane. Well, that, that insanity is insane. It's insane thinking, right? 
Now, Paul, I managed to convince myself, and it, what it did was it allowed me to continue doing what I was doing, and in the end, you know, the, uh, the motivations for much of what we do as people who develop serious problems with addiction is we find ways to doctor up our thinking so that it ultimately what, what some people call the reptilian part of our brain is, 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 is trying to get us to do. The reptilian part of our brain. I haven't heard that one yet, but I love it. We try to doctor up our thinking, or, or in my terms, we justify this, and it's our addiction lying to us in our own voice. How are your liver enzymes now? Is that something that can be oh. reversed? <laughs> no, that's that's actually everything. Everything is back to normal as far as my liver functions go. I'm told that it takes a couple of years, maybe five, before the actual fat deposits on the liver start to get back to where they're just in the normal range. So, yeah, I don't, I don't see any problems there. My doctor doesn't either. It was, uh, it's just interesting, that particular case of my liver and how, how my, my thinking really went, went astray. And, you know, in, in, in the service of, of continuing on and this, this thing that was ultimately self-destructive. Well, Tim, I want to say congratulations for getting off that elevator. The damage has been done, but it looks like it can be reversible to your liver. And I want to chat with you about how you managed to get three years of sobriety without using AA. Now, this podcast has no affiliation with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step program. I think AA is a great program, but we're not affiliated with them. And I myself am always interested to hear about real-life stories of how people used other methods of recovery to get sober. And Tim has used a program called Smart Recovery. The Smart Recovery program is based on four tiers. We support building and maintaining motivation, number two, coping with urges, Number three, managing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And number four, living a balanced life. So, Tim, I'm going to let you take it from here. Just give us a synopsis of what the Smart Recovery Program is. Sure. Uh, this was actually introduced to me by one of the uh, one of the founders of Smart Recovery, who I was lucky uh, to have resided in Massachusetts at the time I decided to uh, make this big change in my life. Uh, and, you know, he essentially, when we, a meeting for a smart recovery meeting is pretty straightforward. There's usually about 10 to 15 people there. There is a brief period of time where we go around the room, we mention our name, we, you know, mention the reason we're there, which can include everything from sex addictions to uh, alcohol addiction to heroin addiction. Whenever a circumstance presents itself where, the, where a person has a behavior or some substance that is starting to interfere with what it is that their normal life, their own values determine they should do, then they come to smart recovery. And so the, the, the first part is to build and maintain motivation to abstain. There are a number of organizations out there that try to train people to be able to moderate and so forth. Um, uh, Smart Recovery is not one of those. Uh, it is an abstinence-based program. And uh, essentially, the things that, that promote abstinence, that deal with you know, altering our thinking and feeling and so forth, are the things that we promote. So the uh, building and maintaining motivation, I'll give you an example from that that was really helpful to me. Uh, one of our, our founders developed this thing called the Hierarchy uh, of Values. And I was actually sitting in a room with 12 other people that I'd never met before. And he just uh, asked me a series of questions. He uh, said, Tim, um, why don't you list for me uh, the things in your life that you 
really place a high degree of value on. So I'm a very studious person, and I thought very diligently about this. Um, he didn't put me on the spot. He asked if it was okay if he asked me some questions directly. And I said, at this point, uh, I'll do anything. I'll stand in my head in the corner if you want me to. Uh, but he asked the questions for those things you value. And I thought, my son. You know, my son was top on the list. My work, I, I put that on there. You know, the fact that I'm, you know, relatively comfortable, I value that fact. I don't have to scramble for money. That was something that I valued. My family, my family never told much to me, and they still do. Uh, so I put my family on the list. And, you know, a bunch of other things. Uh, but we, we uh, after a while, stopped. And uh, Joe, uh, which was the uh, facilitator of this meeting, he suggested something to me that I'll never forget. He said, maybe we should put something else on this list, too. Um, he goes, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what would you say if we put alcohol on that list? And, you know, I was fighting and thinking, well, geez, no, I, can't, I don't really value that. But then we thought about it, and we were talking, and, you know, if you're spending a lot of your time actively trying to pursue something, uh, if you have a mind that is very much tied in one thing, I think it's safe to say that, you know, whether you are happy with it or not, you value that thing. And that made a whole bunch of sense to me. And it really got me to seriously rethink my relation to this substance, especially when Joe pointed out that, okay, well, let's, let's look at this. In your pursuit of one of these things on your list, how does that affect your pursuit of the other? So, in your pursuit of alcohol, how does that affect your relationship with your son? Uh, I said, well, not very well. Okay, so there's a negative there. How does that affect your relationship with your work? Well, I missed a couple of days, a couple of other things. You know, eh, it's, not, it's not very good for my work. Uh, how does it affect your... And the list went on and on. And it turns out that in my pursuit of this one thing, uh, the whole myriad of other things were suffering as a result of it. Those things that I myself, that I valued, I was seeing in black and white on the whiteboard in somebody else's writing what I believed was important for me and curiously leaving out this one thing that clearly was causing me problems. So the building and maintaining motivation part, that is uh, a very, it was a helpful tool for me. And uh, as I've talked to other people who have... Uh, attended smart recovery meetings, similar things have happened with them. So essentially you want to have folks, you know, recognize that there's something going on, there's a problem, uh, then uh, we can provide some tools to help them do that. So that's just one of the tools that's used to build and maintain motivation. Others deal with uh, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And what this part of the program is tied into is a uh, branch of psychology called uh, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy, uh, and in particular a brand of it called rational emotive therapy. And it looks at the idea that much of our behavior or much of our, much of our, our, our thoughts are, are tied into beliefs that we have. And by altering incorrect, unhelpful beliefs, we can alter our responses to the events that we experience. So, for example, we may think that because somebody pulls out in front of traffic in, in, in front of us, that that thing causes us to get upset. But really, it's not that event that causes us to upset. It's our belief about what should happen in the world. Somebody shouldn't pull me in front of me like that. Uh, people should be better drivers, those sorts of things. And it's really those 
beliefs that are driving our feelings. If you alter those underlying beliefs, you can alter the underlying or the later expression of those in terms of our feelings. So it, it involves sort of finding beliefs that are not helpful, finding beliefs that are illogical was the original term, but it sounds kind of softish in that sort of cold, calculated logic. I realize that if we just change that word to helpful, it can make all the difference in the world. You know, is that a helpful thought to think that everybody on the planet should be a courteous driver to you? Well, uh, what we can end up with is a more effective thought, saying that there sure would be a nicer world if this were true. Sure. But that's different than saying this is the way that the world should be. And a lot of times that we get tied up in a moment and we feel like this is driving me to drink, it has to do with you know managing how our beliefs are really driving how 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 we respond emotionally. So if you can alter those underlying beliefs, then you can alter the underlying emotions and things that they can give rise to. So that's just one of the tools for managing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Uh, urges and, and cravings. I've heard some of your other interviewees talk about and. Especially tools to deal with this are things that say, you know, urges, they, they have a, a quality to them that makes them seem that unless that thing is acted on, it will, it will not disappear. It turns out, though, that urges, they, you know, they have a lifespan. They, they start, they live a little while, and then they die unless you engage them, and then they are allowed to live another day. So part of the issues that smart meetings deal with is to help people deal with thoughts and, or excuse me, to deal with their urges and cravings as they come. Knowing that they're temporary uh, is important. Uh, knowing that they subside is important. Knowing that they won't kill you is important. Nobody's ever died of an urge. It may feel like you wish you were dying, but that's, that's, a, that's a different story. So learning about the, you know, how short-lived they are and so forth are things that the tools uh, in the smart recovery toolbox can help with. The last one is uh, building a balanced life. I, it turns out that I, that I devoted tons of time to, if not thinking about getting some alcohol to consume, actually doing it. I had this routine where I would go to different stores on different days of the week so I wouldn't show up a number of times at the same store because, you know, the person who was selling would think I had a problem or something. So, you know, we built these little complicated arrangements and that takes time and effort and I found that when I gave up drinking, there was this huge open space and that's where the, the last tool comes in. Uh, people sometimes, they, they come and they say, okay, well, I haven't been drinking for two months. Now what? Uh, and it's a valid question. And, you know, amongst our group members, we, you know, provide uh, suggestions for different ways to fill the spare time given on an individual specific circumstance and so forth. So uh, the, the whole community that's involved and the sharing that's involved is one of the really important parts of SMART um, that sort of going it alone uh, doesn't, doesn't offer. So that kind of it is in a nutshell. I hope it's doesn't too drawn out. No, that's perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. Listeners, whether they're steps, whether they're points, whether they're tools, they all have value behind them. And there are two recovery tools that I want to talk about with the Smart Recovery Program. And Smart Recovery to me seems like a more of a tangible, almost pragmatic 
approach to getting sober and having a sports background myself, I can relate to it a, a lot. But one of them, I was reading down the list of recovery tools and it says role playing and rehearsing. And immediately I was like, lame. But then I thought about it, Tim, and it's the repetition part. And I went back to you know my football days and getting a handoff or, or catching a pass the more you practice it, the better you're going to be in a game time scenario. And I just went to the fact like if you were role playing and it might even seem lame if you guys all stand up on your chairs and practice saying, you know, say you're in a vulnerable situation at a bar or at a wedding or at a family reunion. Someone says, oh, hey, Paul, I got you a drink. Literally just role playing and saying like, oh, you know, I don't drink anymore. When you get in that situation, it's going to be that much easier. So I actually reversed my role of thinking in that, and I, I think that's a great tool. And the other tool that I really like, I like the acronym USA, which is Unconditional Self-Acceptance. The point is, alcoholics, we kick the shit out of ourselves. We tell ourselves we are bad people, but we're not. Tell me more about the Unconditional Self-Acceptance, Tim. You're, you're right about the, uh, about the beating ourselves up idea. A lot of people who come to, come to our meetings are incredibly guilty. I was, I was one of those. I was convinced that, that my actions were responsible for many of the difficulties I was having in my life, and certainly that's true to a certain extent. On the other hand, to believe that you know, all the horrible things that are happening to me at this moment are due to the fact that I'm a bad person that is a, talk about the, the pragmatic idea, Paul. I mean, that's as, pragmatically speaking, that is an incredibly unhelpful set of ideas to have, that you are, are, are somehow unworthy. And uh, given the background of spot recovery, one of the, uh, the, the most important things to, to challenge, I mean, intellectually to get rid of, is this idea that you're somehow not worthy. Some of the more uh, intriguing stories I've heard in me deal with people coming to a realization that, you know, not only do I know I can do this, but I know that there's a, there's a reason why I should, and that's because I'm a decent person. Now, uh, these people said themselves, I never would have caught myself saying that, say, two months ago when I was still using, but I've, you know, changed my thinking, and now I believe that, uh, you know, I am worth something, and there is a reason for me to, you know, carry on and to continue this very difficult process, uh, which leads me actually to another point about the, the acronym SMART. Um, SMART stands for self-management and recovery training. I was in the impression the first time I gave up alcohol that when I got out of the detox, I would have the poison gone from my system and I'd be a better person. I realized that it was really going to take some serious work on my behalf. And I like to point out at the beginning of meetings in the context of other people talking is that the training part, you know, can't be overemphasized. And given your, your athletic background, uh, I essentially tell people, you just imagine you're training for a marathon. You don't just wait for important good things to happen. You've got to make them happen. And making them happen involves actively questioning how it is you're talking to yourself. So, you know, I'm, I'll only have one. Actively question that. Really, because we can ask ourselves, how, how has that played itself out in the past? If we're being rational, if we're being thoughtful, the last time you tried to have only one, did it work out that way? Usually the answer is no. So we've got to re, retool our thinking to actually accurately reflect what we know to be true about the world 
uh, in that case, it's just having one or, or having multiple and so on. But to get back to the uh, unconditional uh, acceptance thing, uh, there's also another part that's not on that flyer that I showed you that deals with the unconditional acceptance of others, which also can play a big role in how people respond to stressors and so forth. But I think I got that question, I, I hope. No, that was that was perfect. And Tim, after reading the, the handout that you sent me, I see the word confidential, but I scanned it again, and then I scanned it again, and I was looking for another word, which I didn't find. That was the word anonymous. Now, after mm-hmm. your meetings, yeah, can, can you go out and share with other people your recovery and talk about, hey, guys, if you want to get sober, there's this great program called Smart Recovery, or is there a poster on the wall with traditions that says you can't share your recovery? What, what Smart Recovery asks that you do is that if you've got your own story to tell, please, please tell it to anybody and everybody if you are of the mind that you're telling other people about your story is going to help you. If you want to talk about other people's stories, uh, that's a different thing. Totally. And that's the confidential part. So uh, I will gladly tell anybody my story before, during, and after a meeting, but I won't tell somebody else's story. I, if, I, if I use sort of an example, I'll say some guy once in a meeting said, in sure. this case, it could never be tied to an individual. I actually really like the answer that you just said there, that question. Tim, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Tim, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Tim, number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? My worst memory. uh, My son was about eight years old, and uh, I had to have a night of drinking. Um, The next morning, he woke up and talked about the things we did the night before. And I was completely unaware of those things. Uh, um, I, nodded, I nodded my head and said, uh, sure, I remember, and uh, I felt absolutely horrible. Mm. Tim, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Oh, my plan in sobriety is to continue to, I, I facilitate meetings now myself. It's a good outlet for me. I've found a number of hobbies and activities that uh, I had previously alive and well prior to my you know, drinking, and they've come back with a with a uh, with a vengeance that I just plan on continuing to engage in those. Tim, what's your favorite resource in recovery? Oh I think I think it should be clear. <laughs> Smart recovery has been one of the most helpful things to me. It allowed me to find an outlet for this you know, pent up desire that I had to help other people that I didn't even know I had. But importantly to, to that help me restructure uh, my thought process in a way that uh, ultimately doesn't kill me. Tim, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you have ever received? The best advice I have ever received is to, to be told this is not going to be easy. Um, if you're waiting for some external force to make a better life for you, to, to show you the way, uh, good, but don't hold your breath waiting for external things to make your life better. Uh, plan instead on you having to devote a lot of time and energy and resources into producing the kind of life that you want to have. Tim, it's time to pay it forward now. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? Talk to people. 
go to a meeting. There are online meetings uh, for Smart Recovery and a bunch of others, too. Uh, talk to people, and to the extent that you're able to get outside of your head uh, just long enough to, to learn about what other people are going through, ways that they've uh, dealt with problems. You know, if you're not a big fan of anybody telling you what to do, Smart Recovery is a good solution. We don't tell anybody what to do, but we do provide people with tools for how to um, make better decisions all on their own. So get input, you know, input from, from outside sources. Probably the primary advice I'd give. So. Listeners, you can find Smart Recovery at www.smartrecovery.org. Tim, I want to say thank you so much for joining us and sharing with us what Smart Recovery is all about. Thank you, Paul. This is a journey, and I want you to come with me. If you've been sober longer than one year, two weeks, and two days, I want to come with you. There's so much happiness and sobriety. I want for you guys what I want for myself. Reach out. It's part of your program, too. That's the beauty of this thing. In fact, send us your sober selfies to info at recoveryelevator.com. Be proud. I don't care if you've got seven days or seven years. Snap a photo. Snap a selfie. And in the subject line, put your name and how long you've been sober. We'll do the fun graphics. You should be proud of this. Recovery Elevator. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this.